Well, good evening. It is a pleasure to be here with you tonight. I often tell Jared that one of my great dreams when I get old, if I'm not there yet, but when I get old is to retire and move to Johnstown and hand out bulletins here at Trinity to the glory of God. Um, and it's especially a pleasure to be here tonight because of the theme that I've been assigned tonight, Christ alone. Jared told me, with all due respect to the other preachers, I'm sure from the previous four years, he told me, I can't believe no one's picked Christ alone yet. And I would echo what uh, Jared said in his introductory remarks, um, and that is the idea that in Christ, all of the other solas cohere, and, and in a sense, they're founded upon the notion of Christ alone. He is at the very center of it all. Um, it's five Reformation solas, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone. Uh, we, don't, we don't actually find them compiled together until, at least in my understanding, until the, the 19th or 20th centuries. Um, but they're incredibly important, and they're found throughout all of the writings of the Reformers. One theologian says that the five solas are the Copernican revolution at the heart of the Reformation, and it is fitting that we've landed at last after five years now on Christ alone, on this 500th anniversary of the Reformation. When we think of faith alone, we understand that it is faith in Christ alone that we confess. Faith is merely an instrument. Christ is the object of our faith. When we think of grace alone, we, we confess that grace is Christ alone. Grace isn't an abstract idea or theological concept, grace comes to us in a person, the person of Christ. When we think of Scripture alone, we know that Christ alone is the person to whom all of Scripture testifies. And when we think of glory to God alone, we know that it is Christ alone who reveals to us the fullness of God's glory John Calvin, I'll refer to the Reformers a little bit this evening since it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. John Calvin, writing in his Institutes, referring to Colossians 2, 3, speaking of Christ alone, he says, For in Christ all treasure of knowledge and wisdom are hid with such great abundance and richness that to seek any new addition to these treasures is truly to arouse God's wrath. To seek anything outside of Christ is to arouse God's wrath. And then he says, it is for us to hunger for, seek, look to, learn, and study Christ alone. And let's, let's do just that as we give our hearts and minds attention to God's word this evening from John Chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. Hear now God's word. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Friends, as we read and mark and study these words this evening about Jesus' crucifixion and death, we're entering into territory that touches on the deepest mysteries of the Christian faith. Here is Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. He, he is God the Son. He is the author of life. But here he is on the cross, suffering, and he dies. He dies. Here is Jesus. And he's only ever known from eternity past the pure joy and love and fellowship and communion of his father. He's only ever known his father's smile, those words, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That is all he's known. But here on the cross, he now knows experientially the white-hot wrath of God, his Father. Even as he dies as a man, just like you and I will, will die, his heart stops, the synapses in his brain stop firing, he, he dies. But even as he dies... He continues to govern and uphold the universe by his sovereign power as God the Son. Even as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even as he in those words and in those moments of darkness has no sense of his divine sonship, no sense of his father's love for him, even as he cannot call God what he's always called God, Father. He can't do it in these moments on the cross. Even as he's forsaken by the Father, still in the mystery and wonder of the incarnation, he remains united to the Father and to the Spirit as one God. The Father is in him and he is in the Father. Even in Jesus' forsakenness, the Trinitarian unity of the Godhead is never broken. Even as he says here in our passage, I thirst, verse 28. He remains the source of living water. He remains the only one who can say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And we read these mysteries, they're to our minds, they're not in reality, but to our minds, we think of them as apparent paradoxes, perhaps. And, and we recognize as we see 
this reality cohering in the person of Christ. We're touching on the very identity of Jesus and the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. He's one person with two natures, human and divine. These are truths that fuel our wonder and worship, don't they? They do. They do for me. I know they do for you too. The incarnate Christ is glorious beyond our comprehension. And and dear friends, these are truths that we remain in absolute agreement on with our Roman Catholic friends. I think this is important to remember this evening as we celebrate the Reformation. Our, Our Roman Catholic friends confess with us the glory and wonder of the Incarnation. We share with them the ancient creeds confessing Jesus as perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead and co-essential with us according to manhood. No wonder Martin Luther, when he was ordained as a monk and when he first served Mass in the Roman Catholic Church in 1507, this is 10 years before the 95 Thesis, no wonder that Martin Luther trembled so much when he held the bread in his hand. He trembled in terror so much that he almost dropped it and fled from the altar because he had a true sense of the divine glory and majesty and wonder of Christ's identity. He wrongly thought that Christ was The bread was transformed to Christ, but he rightly understood something about the glory of Christ. And we should remember tonight that our our Roman Catholic friends confess with us the full glory and wonder of the incarnation, but they fail to see the full glory and wonder of the work of Christ. They can't, they can't proclaim with us tonight as we do Christ alone because Christ alone speaks of the finished work of Christ. As Jesus proclaims here, it is, it is finished and, and they, don't see, they don't see a finished work. They see more work yet to be done, our own work to add to Christ in many ways. So tonight, as, we, as we've gathered together to celebrate the Reformation, and rightly so, and as we rejoice in God's grace and in the finished work of Christ, we, we should also mourn and pray over our, our Catholic friends who don't see the glory of his finished work. And you all have Roman Catholic friends, I know, friends, family members, my, my neighbors, an old couple across the street from me, members, members of the Catholic Church, the, the husband, Dave, he had cancer a few years ago, terminal cancer. He eventually died of it. He had to quit work, and so he would, he would just sit on his porch all day, and in the evenings, the sun would beat down directly on my front porch, and his would be shaded. So I would go sit in the shade with him on the front porch, and we would talk. He was, he was dying. 
And he wasn't just sitting on his front porch passing the time. He was thinking about the deep things of, of life, as any of us would. And secretly, he would ask me questions about the faith. Secretly, because who knows what his wife would do if she ever found out she is a devout, devout Catholic. If she ever found out he was questioning the Catholic faith. And he would say to me, he would say to me, he knew, he knew something of the glory of Christ. And he would say to me, why, why do I need a priest to confess my sins to? Why do I need to go to mass as if Christ has already been sacrificed, has not been sacrificed? And he, he, knew, he, knew, he knew instinctively, he'd never been taught this, but he seemed to know instinctively that only God can save him. I would, tell, I would tell him, you don't need a priest. You, you only need Christ alone. And I, I think he believed it. I think he believed it. He seemed to affirm that with so much of his being because he knew something about who Jesus is, his glory and his nature as a person. So friends, our, our Reformation celebration this evening is a reminder to all, all of us to pray and to witness to our Roman Catholic friends who know something of the person of Christ but know not his work. Let's turn our attention to these last words of Jesus. We actually could say the last word of Jesus because in the Greek it is only one word. English it is finished but one word in the Greek And I don't know of any other single word that packs so much meaning into it. It is almost as if the remainder of the New Testament is simply an exposition, an explanation of the significance of this last word that Jesus speaks before his death. It is finished. And it is is this word that the reformers would turn to over and over again to highlight the perfection and completion and sufficiency of Christ's saving work for us. And I want to say just, just two things about this word that Jesus speaks here tonight, and the first is this. This word is, uh, is scripture. This word is an allusion to the very last line of Psalm 22. We know that Psalm 22 is on Jesus' mind as he, as he hung, dying, Psalm 22 is a psalm of lament. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes this psalm directly while he's on the cross. Psalm 22 goes on to speak in incredible prophetic detail about the suffering of Christ. I am am a worm and not a man, it says. Scorned by mankind, all who see me mock me, all my bones are out of joint, my strength is dried up, my tongue sticks to my jaws, you lay me in the dust of death, I can count all my bones, they divide their garments, my garments among them, and for my clothing cast lots. This is Psalm 22. The suffering of Christ in excruciating detail And it's the word of God that is on Jesus' mind and heart as he hangs dying. But but Psalm 22, as it continues, it doesn't end with suffering and death. It ends in victory and, and, and in life. 
In Psalm 22, God hears the cry of anguish. God delivers. The psalm says that God does not despise the affliction of the afflicted, but he hears his cry. All of the families of the nations will worship God. Kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules. It's a psalm of lament, but it's also a song of of victory. He is the king. He rules. And the last line of Psalm 22, 31 says, He has done it. He has done it in our ESV translation here, or alternatively, it can be translated, it is done. It is finished. It's a declaration of victory. Victory by a reigning king, the Lord, the God Almighty. Jesus quotes from the first line of the psalm in his dereliction, Why have you forsaken me? And he quotes from the last line of the psalm in his victory. It is finished. He has done it. Dear friends, here is is Jesus. As a dying man with his heart and mind filled with God's word. He's... You see what he's doing? He's, he's speaking and praying and mauling over God's word as if the only thing he has to keep him and guard him and guide him through such overwhelming darkness is this word. And in fact, in his humanity, God's word really is the only thing he has as he's dying. It's all he has. So he clings to it. He clings to it. It's his lifeline. It is his only light and comfort as he endures the hell of the cross. His disciples have abandoned him. His very clothes have been torn off of him. His body is failing him. He's mocked by the crowds and Worst of all, his father has turned against him. God declares to to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he declares that to us because at this moment on the cross, he has forsaken his son. And Jesus does not know that promise that he will never be forsaken. He doesn't know it like we know it. But still, Jesus knows the promises of God because he has his Father's word. Because he has that word, he's in possession of his Father's gospel promises. And this is what Psalm 22 is. It's clearly on Jesus' heart. Psalm 22 is a proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is rehearsing and reciting the gospel to himself, not not because he has sinned and is in need of a savior, but because he has been reckoned a sinner. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he has been made to be sin. And in his dereliction and suffering, what he needs most of all to hear and know and believe are God's covenant promises for him. It's part of the wonder, mystery of the incarnation here. In his, in his humanity, he, he has nothing else to cling to. And, and think about this for, for a, 
Think about this tonight. For, for Jesus, God's word is it's absolutely sufficient to feed and nourish his soul. It's enough to sustain him through the very fires of hell until his very last breath. As he says, it is finished. Even the words he speaks in verse 28, I thirst is from the scriptures. Psalm 69. In his divinity, he is the word of God, but in his humanity, he is utterly dependent on the word of God. Here is Jesus living and dying by the doctrine of scripture alone. Scripture alone is not something the reformers made up. It goes all the way back to Jesus who lived by it and died by it. And if Jesus lived and died by Scripture alone, then we also should see our absolute dependence on God's Word, shouldn't we? And, and so I would ask you tonight, is God's Word sufficient for you? Is it sufficient for you? If God's Word can sustain Jesus through hell, will, will it also sustain you tomorrow, tomorrow? With whatever trial or difficulty comes your way? Will you cling to God's word as Jesus does? Will you study it and cherish it? Will you rehearse it for yourself? All of his covenant promises, will you possess his living word in your heart and mind intimately within yourself? Not do you have a dozen copies on your shelf at home, but do you, do you possess it internally so that when you, you're pricked, you bleed the Bible? Do you live off of every word that comes from the mouth of God? And, and will you die as Jesus does with God's word on your heart? Recently visited a woman on her deathbed and was visiting with her for a period of several days. I didn't know her. She wasn't a Christian. She never, she never possessed God's word. She never knew it. She never believed it. And as I would go and visit her, she, she lay dying, and every time I went to see her, the, the television set was on blaring. She's on her deathbed, and the television is blaring into her ears. I would come in, the family would politely turn the TV down. I'd read, I'd read scripture, I'd, I'd pray with her, I'd try to share the gospel with them, and then I'd leave, and they would turn the television right back up this this woman was ushered into eternity with Travis Tritt blaring a song into her ears. The song was, it's a great day to be alive. The family thought this was an incredible thing. It was, it was the only light they had. I don't want to die with the television blaring in my ears. Certainly not Travis Tritt. I want to die like Jesus dies, with God's word, his covenant promises ringing in my heart and mind. I want to hear again and again that he loves me, that I'm his child, that he will never leave or forsake me. If God's word is sufficient for Jesus in the hell of the cross, and surely it's sufficient for us as we live and die. The second thing I want to say about this word, it is finished, 
I've already said it, but I'll repeat it here, is that it is, it is a cry of victory. This isn't a cry of defeat. This isn't Jesus saying, I am finished. Far from it. He's, he's saying, he has done it. He's the victor. He's won the battle, and it is a multifaceted victory. He's defeated Satan. He's brought all things under subjection to his reign. He's defeated the power of death. He's obliterated the power and guilt of our sin. The battle is over for Jesus. There will be no more struggle or strife. He is is now uh, in his last breath proclaiming himself to be the victorious king. It is an awesome thing. And we can think of some of these various aspects of Christ's victory tonight. We don't have time for many of them, but we can think of a few of them. The victory secures his resurrection from the grave, doesn't it? The grave cannot hold him. He's endured to the end. He's kept his covenant with the Father. He has not sinned. He remains the righteous one. He's the victor and champion over death itself. It's an awesome thing. Last week, I was on vacation, and last Saturday, we were at Bilger's Rocks in Kerwinsville, Pennsylvania. I wonder if any of you have ever been to Bilger's Rocks. Some see some of you have been. It's a rock formation, and you can climb on them and crawl around on them. It's a great place to bring kids if they're not too young, because there are heights there. Um, But if they're not too young, they love to crawl around and climb on the rocks. And I was standing talking to my oldest daughter, and the other kids were playing around the rocks. We We couldn't see them. We didn't know where they were. And then as we were standing there, we heard from a little hole in the ground, a little girl's voice. Uh, it was this little, little tiny hole in the ground. I don't know where it led. I don't know where it came from. But we heard this voice, and it was, it was my youngest daughter. She's six. And she said, Shazam. <laughs> and then out of this hole in the ground, her head popped out. <laughs> I, I have no idea where she came from. Emily and I, we just looked at each other, the older daughter. We just looked at each other. She said, Shazam. She emerged from this hole. It was her own cry of victory. She climbed out and she said, that's the power of tiny. Because she was small, she could climb out of, of this hole. We don't know what Jesus said. We don't know what he said when he arose from the grave. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know what his first words were? It would have been perfectly appropriate, I think, for him to have said, Shazam as he stuck his head out of the tomb. That's the power of my righteousness, he could have said. We don't know what he said upon his resurrection, if if anything, but we know what he said upon his death that secured his resurrection. It is finished. And it's a cry of victory over the grave itself. Oh, death Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And in Christ, dear friends, we share in that victory, don't we? We share in that victory. I didn't realize this till a couple of years ago, but oftentimes in cemeteries, the graves are designed to face toward the east. I don't know if, did you know, did you know this? I didn't know this. I looked into it and I, I found it's, it's true in Christian cemeteries because the hope is that when 
Christ returns from the east, we may think of that figuratively nonetheless, that we will be raised to see him first and foremost from the grave. Someday our heads will pop out of holes in the ground because Christ said, it is finished. I don't know, maybe you'll say Shazam as you do. And if you do, it is all because Jesus here is able to say it is finished. It's a victory over the grave. It's also a victory over Satan. John John Calvin would describe Christ's victory over Satan as a kind of hand-to-hand combat. He says he had to grapple hand-to-hand with the armies of hell and the dread of everlasting death. Martin Luther, Martin Luther, whenever he speaks of Satan, he's just a wild man. Martin Luther is a wild man speaking of Satan. It's unbelievable. Just look up any of his comments on Satan. So he speaks of Satan in his own novel and graphic way, and he suggests that the devil tried to swallow Christ upon his crucifixion, but he couldn't digest him. And Luther says, for Christ sticks in his gills, the serpent, he sticks in his gills and he must spew him out again. Even as he chews him, the devil chokes and is slain and is taken captive by Christ. Might not be the best theological explanation of the cross, but his point is well made. Jesus defeated Satan once and for all upon his death. The picture of this victory over Satan is dramatically detailed in in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, speaking of the devil, Revelation 12, 8 says, he was defeated. That's the moment that happens here when Jesus says, it is finished. He was defeated, Revelation 12, 8, and it goes on in Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down That's that hand-to-hand grappling that Calvin speaks of. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. It's an amazing picture, isn't it, of total victory, total annihilation, really. It's a picture of the very moment Jesus speaks these words. It is, it is finished. Satan may still prowl around this world seeking to do harm, but he's nothing more than a dog on a chain. He, he cannot threaten you in any ultimate way because his case against you has disintegrated if you are in Christ. He can never accuse you before God because by his blood, Jesus has cast down Satan. And the wonderful thing in all of this is that we share in this victory. As Revelation goes on, detailing this victory of Christ, it makes the incredible point that we, as the people of Christ, share in his victory. It says, and they, they, that's us, have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. They've conquered Satan by the blood of Christ. That means we are conquerors in Christ. We're the victors 
with him, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. So John Calvin says, let us not doubt that we shall always be victorious over the devil. Not to say that we don't have a proper care when we think of the devil or speak of the devil, but sometimes it seems to be the case that Christians live in fear of the devil that paralyzes them. We need to remember that he's defeated. And Luther, again, just wild when it came to talking about the devil, Luther would say that when the devil comes knocking on the door of his heart to tempt him or to accuse him or harass him, Luther says he wouldn't, he wouldn't answer. He would send Christ to answer. <laughs> and Jesus would say to the devil, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out and I live here now. And the devil would look at Jesus and see the, the marks in his hand and the scar on his side and he would flee in terror. That's how Luther would handle the temptations of the devil. And he could do that because he's defeated by Christ. Luther would also remind us that the devil is God's devil. This is an amazing thing to think of. The devil ultimately, in every way, serves God's purposes. Jesus is the victorious king over Satan, so that Satan now in every way serves God's purposes. Luther would say that he can, he can rage and rant and seek to dis destroy, but, but Luther says, and here I quote, the devil must serve us with the very thing which he plans to injure us. For God is such a great master that he is able to turn even the wickedness of the devil into good. We see that on the cross, don't we? The greatest wicked act of Satan imaginable. Leading Jesus here to this crucifixion turned into the greatest good act of God himself imaginable. And all of this, all of this is accomplished by Christ and his victory over Satan. So friends, when the devil comes to you to tempt you, to accuse you, to wreak havoc in your life, he does that, doesn't he? When he comes to lead you to despair and to remind you of all of your sins, one after another, from years and years past, from yesterday, from today, remember, remember these words of Christ. It is finished. Tell them to Satan. Remind yourself. Remind him he is defeated. The judicial case against you with all of, the, all of the detailed records that Satan likes to keep on file along with all of his demonic law clerks, they, they have no bearing on you anymore because all of it has been obliterated by the finished work of Christ and no accusation against you can ever stand again. It is finished. And this, of course, brings us to that aspect of Christ's victory that has to do with our, our sin. When Jesus says it is finished, it's not merely a victory over Satan. It is also a victory over the power and condemnation of sin, of our, our sin. 
And here's Jesus. Certainly he is the victorious king in this moment. It is finished. But here also he is. He's the great high priest. And he's offering himself as a sin offering for us once and for all. For us. Wasn't it Luther? Wasn't it Luther who said that the gospel is made up of prepositions? For us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is finished. This is the moment of victory over our, our, our sin. And it's a wonderful thing to know that after Jesus died and was raised and ascended into heaven, he went and he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. Think of the Old Testament temple. In the Old Testament temple, there were no chairs for the priests to sit down because, because their work was never done. It was never done. There was always, day after day, new sacrifices because their work never actually atoned for the sin of the people. It never actually accomplished their salvation. It was only a picture of what Christ would do. But Jesus, as our great high priest, he sits down, having accomplished everything that God has given him to do, because it is finished. He's borne our sins away. He's satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. As, as I close tonight, I want to remind us of the words of John Calvin I read at the very beginning before I got to our, our passage here. Remember his words. He said, For in Christ all treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hid with such great abundance and richness that to seek any new addition to these treasures is truly to arouse God's wrath. And he said, It is for us to hunger for, seek, look to, learn, and study Christ alone. I, th I think of what Calvin is saying here, and it seems very clear to me that, that is, at least part of his point is this, we're, we're not merely to look to the work of Christ alone. As important as his work is, as essential as it is to the Reformation, to our salvation, Calvin wants to show us here also that our aim is to look to Christ himself directly. To, to know that at the heart of our hope, at the heart of our salvation, at the heart of all of our systems of doctrine and theology stands a, a person, a person. Jesus Christ. Christ alone. And we're to learn and study him. Do you see that tonight? Do you see that God's response to our sin is not simply to forget it or to act as if it never happened? His response to our sin is to, to give to us Christ in all of his unyielding glory. Perfect man, fully God and fully man. 
And this means he's our goal, he's our end, our salvation, the reformation, the scriptures, grace is all about a person. This might be the greatest heritage of the Reformation, this relentless reminder from the Reformers, as we've seen it in John Calvin, that Christ is our end, that our union with him is our hope, that our communion with him is our joy, that the work he did and the words he spoke, it is finished, brought us into his family as adopted children, and that we can know him fully. When Pastor Karlberg prayed, he prayed for a a new reformation today. Think of the world of the reformers, the Roman Catholic dominated world of Europe during their days. And as I said, many people knew something of the person of Christ, the glory of Christ, but they knew not the glory of his work. We move forward 500 years to our own day and our own context, and what's it look like? People don't know the work of Christ today, do they? Nor, Nor do they know anything about the person of Christ. And if we would have a modern Reformation today, we need to proclaim Christ alone in all of his glory and splendor and work to the watching world. It was a year ago, maybe a couple of years ago, this was in the news, Uh, maybe you'll remember it, it was out of Britain, there was a 14-year-old girl who had terminal cancer, she was going to die. She had terminal cancer, and I I think there was a dispute with her parents, so a lawsuit ensued, but she, she wanted to be cryogenically frozen because she didn't want to die. She didn't want to die. She wrote this. She wrote this in a letter to the judge. I'm only 14 years old and I don't want to die, but I know I'm going to die. I think being cryopreserved gives me a chance to be cured and woken up, even in hundreds of years' time. I want to live and live longer, and I think that in the future they might find a cure for my cancer and wake me up. I want to have this chance. This is the context of our world today. This is this, is this young woman's only hope. It's her only hope. This is what it looks like to die, dear friends, without the gospel, without God's word, without Christ. Her, her hope is not in Christ who has declared it is finished. Her hope is in man. Her hope is not in Christ who promises life and resurrection. Her hope is in cryogenic freezing. It's the hope of being raised one day only to die again. And I think, is there no one, is there no one to tell this girl about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's accomplished, about the victory over death and sin and Satan, that he is one about the promise of resurrection and eternal life and fellowship and communion with him, dear friends, if we would have a modern reformation today, we must proclaim Christ and Christ alone. Let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, we give praise to you for your word, which 
is mighty to bring salvation to us. We could give praise to you for your grace in Christ. We give praise to you for the gift of faith. We give praise to you that you have revealed your glory to us in Christ. We give praise to you that you have blessed us with union with Christ so that he dwells within us and we are in him so that what is true of him is now true of us. We will be raised and declared righteous. We have been by your holy tribunal. What a joy it is to know him. We plead with you, God, bring bring a new reformation to your church and to this earth today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.